Welcome to Nature Knows, conversations with wild warriors and changemakers. I'm your host, Jen Vitenzo, and this podcast is all about nature, both the wild kind outside our front doors and the humankind written within our DNA. Each episode showcases an individual who has dedicated their efforts to create a better today to ensure we have an actual tomorrow, and they are using their unique creative fingerprints to do it. These are the wild warriors and change makers constructing the bridges necessary to connect us all, human to human, species to species, worlds to worlds. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Nature Knows. Today's guest is Wendy Panino, who is a pangolin specialist. If you've never heard of a pangolin, it's kind of what you get if you cross a badger with an artichoke. It also happens to be the most heavily trafficked mammal in the world, and most people have never heard of it. I got to meet Wendy when we were both working at Swalu Kalahari, which is a game reserve in South Africa. So that meant I got to go on some monitoring sessions with a pangolin that she studies, which is really cool, because they're pretty amazing little animals. Wendy is a PhD student and she works with the KEEP project, which is the Kalahari Endangered Ecosystem Project. And essentially this project studies the ecosystems and the interconnectivity of everything within it. She's an amazing person who's done some incredible work. She has a pangolin expert that gets asked by places like the BBC all the time for her input and her expertise. And I'm really excited to introduce you to her today. Thanks so much for listening. So we're in a quick intro, just a little bit about you and what you do, how you got to where you are, sort of what you do and how you got there. A quick, well, it doesn't have to be quick. You can take as long as you want. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's, 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 am I, have I been pronouncing this wrong this whole time? It's, so is it, is it Panino <laughs> or Panino? I never pronounce it. I don't know. Panino. Panino. Okay. So great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're here with the amazing Wendy Panino who works with pangolin, which are some of the coolest animals in the world. And, you know, and I got to experience them because of you. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit about you, how you got to where you are, what you do and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so a lot of it was totally by accident. I will admit it, <laughs> it was never like I grew up with this ambition to work with wildlife or pangolins. Um, so yeah, it just happened along the way. I always had a passion for the outdoors and for wildlife, but I never really knew that this was a career option. And so that's the accident part is I, you know, went to university, said, well, I know what I don't want to do. So by the process of elimination, I kind of checked off the list saying, no, business is not it. It's never going to be like accounting. I'm never going to be in law. And um, yeah, I came across a simple BSc degree in biological sciences and started with that. And I just loved it along the way. And in third year, it was the first time we really got to do a research project and started learning that this is a real career path that I can do. And I thought, this is so crazy. Okay, yes, doesn't feel like it's work, but sure, I'll go along with that one. And then did my honors in, um, in well, zoology, to put it in simple terms. And I worked on sable antelope then. And then went on to do masters, not having a clue what I was going to do it on. I knew I wanted to do a masters, but I just had no idea what. And my supervisor at the time said, "Well, there's a project on offer doing or well, working with pangolins." And I thought, "Yes, of course. So, you know, I'll jump on board with that." And then, yeah, five years later, I don't know what happened to the time, but here I am, still working with pangolins, and it, it eventually became a PhD. So I'm only a few weeks away from finishing the PhD, but yeah, it's just been the most insane journey. <laughs> like you just blink and time's gone by and you find yourself in this amazing situation. So yeah, that's me. That's incredible. So you have been at Swalu, which is for people that don't know, it's a game reserve in the Kalahari in South Africa. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You've been there for how long now? Five years. Uh, it is five years, yeah. <laughs> Which is where we met when I was working with meerkats yep. and trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grow up, which I still haven't figured out. <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. Again, that's also by process of elimination. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, don't like that. Don't want to do that. Don't want. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but your pangolin, at least one of your pangolins, is the topic of the second book I started working on, the second children's book, Mr. Charles. It's amazing. I love this. <laughs> Sir Charles. Sir so, Charles. 
That yep. is what people have named him. Yep. Mm -hmm. The child, the scaly knight of the Red Sand Sea. <laughs> you really do have a way with words. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, that was writing in some capacity has pretty much become my thing because I'm not really good at anything else, to be honest. Of course you so. are. Come on. No, no. But no. it's something you love, which is good. Yeah. No, that does help because it would have probably been terrible if I didn't like to write or didn't <laughs> like words. That would have been. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that's so cool. I'm so excited for you. That's like, that's a, such a huge, I just, I spoke to someone about a week ago about, she's also doing her PhD program and she's doing it with aerospace engineering. And I talked to you guys and I'm like, I just, I just feel a little dumb. <laughs> no, come I on, just, come on. If I had to ask you about writing a book, you I mean, yeah, you'd make me feel dumb. I don't know the first thing about writing a book, you know, or you really just doing a writing. podcast or whatever. So it's <laughs> literally just your experiences. It's not like we're some, I don't know, geniuses in, <laughs> in something. But know, what PhD is great, but you're specializing in one thing. Well, for the most part, in one thing. So I can talk your ears off about that one thing. But if you had to ask me about aeronautical engineering, <laughs> my knowledge is very, very limited with that. <laughs> But you said something that was what she said and everyone else I've spoken to has said the same thing, which is that it ha you have to be able to speak about it. And so the communication part is so integral to all of this, the ability to to be able to talk to people about what you do in a way that you connect mm -hmm. with people. And um, I always found that one of the challenges and one of the things that I was good at in the field was the way with words. It was the ability to take the material that I, you know, the 12 syllable Latin words of mm -hmm. this, that and the other thing. Yeah and explain it to a guest or a student or whoever was there in a way that they were like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. Um, but it's amazing how, you know, it's it's so easy to get stuck in this sort of void of, well, this is what I'm doing and I'm very myopic. I'm very focused on this and I'm not to worry about that and I don't have to worry about that. But at the same time, so much of it is connected. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you have to be able to communicate to be able to do your job. It's not like you just have to be really good at research or you have to be really patient yeah. or you have to, which are all factors of it. Um, yeah, exactly. As you know, sitting with waiting for the little pangolins to come out at night and following them around. <laughs> you um, do learn a lot along the way. It is it is more than just writing things in a paper and publishing it. It is there's a lot that goes behind it, and but it's great because yeah, I just five years and my knowledge and skills has just exploded and beyond pangolins, like you say. You know, it's just being in this environment is just insane. And it's amazing how everything sort of connects to everything else. Like you don't, again, not in a vacuum, it's all, you know, you look at the penguin, but it's not just the penguin, it's what is the penguin eating and what else is potentially competing with it? And how does that affect the system that they're in? And uh, why do they only occur in certain areas? Like what specialization do they have that exactly. allows them to live in, you know? Well, can you talk a little bit? Cause I, I think a lot of people, more and more people are learning, like starting to know what a penguin is, which is great for so many reasons, being yep. the most heavily trafficked mammal in the world. For an animal that people don't really see all that often, it's amazing that that has such high, it's actually terrifying that it has such high numbers of trafficking, but. Um, oh, I know. Yeah, so they make the cutest little noises. <laughs> little <laughs> I love them, I love them. Um, so can you tell people a little bit about what what is a penguin, essentially? Yeah, I think short and sweet, it's a scaly anteater. So a lot of people like to compare it to the armadillo, which a lot more people know about. Um, but it's very different, not even closely related to an armadillo. Closest relative is the carnivore group, would you believe? And of all things that you can imagine, it's the carnivores that are the wow. sister group. So, um, yeah, but it's so interesting because usually I would start my talks and stuff by saying, most of you have never even heard of a pangolin. And now with the whole pandemic thing, it's like, well, now most of you have really heard of a pangolin. So <laughs> not really sure how to start this thing. But yeah, they're cool little animals. Um, there's eight species in the world, which is another thing people don't really know. Uh, four in Africa and four in Asia. The one we have here in South Africa is the Temmings ground pangolin. And they are ground dwelling, as their name implies. And they walk on two little legs, walking around foraging. They only eat ant and termites. And not just any ants and termites either, very fussy with which ants and termites they like to eat. Um, yeah, mostly they are nocturnal, so I get to spend my nights hanging out with them. Um, sometimes during the winter, they'll come out during the day, which is great for us for photography uh, purposes. It's really nice to be able to watch them that, in that way. But um, yeah, with the findings of my PhD, it's maybe not the best things that 
these animals are coming out during the day um, without really revealing too much. It's just, yeah, you know, winter is a stressful period for a lot of animals. Um, and now pangolins are added to that list. So by coming out earlier during the day, um, it's their way of trying to compensate for um, energy deficits. Mm. And so, like I said, while it's great for us to see an animal during the daytime and you can get some amazing photographs, it's maybe not the best thing for those animals. Yeah. But yeah, the rest of my time I spend walking around with them in, at night, as you would know, Jen. Yeah, that was crazy. Just just watching them just sort of, and they don't, they don't even care. They just do their thing. I, exactly. I one of the biggest questions that I get is, weren't you afraid being out there? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I know I realize that there are plenty of things that could definitely kill me. You know, there's, it's, I feel like about <laughs> everything there could theoretically, if it really wanted to. Yeah. Um, but I always felt like they were so peaceful and calm in a weird, strange way. And especially in the Kalahari at night, because it, mm -hmm. I've never heard a silence as deep as I heard being out there. It was amazing. Yeah. Like you didn't even hear, I, I don't remember if it was, it was, it was definitely one of the times that I was with you, but I remember just stopping and thinking, I don't, I don't even hear bugs. I don't hear ins. I don't hear anything. And it was what, yeah, they are. The winds. It was just a really, unbelievable quiet, quiet night and yeah, it, they are a couple of those nights and they are the, they're the most special you know it's i mean a lot of the time during summer especially it's noisy and there's insects and geckos barking but every now and then there's that night where it's just totally calm totally peaceful and this animal in front of you just captures you and it just takes you away somewhere else totally focused on him because there's nothing else i mean he just all you hear is the little sniffing the little <laughs> which i just fell in love with. I just think it's the cutest thing. And I love just- It is, it's very cute. And I love the way they walk. I love that they have, you know, the four legs, but they walk on the back ones and the little front ones kind of yeah. almost mirror Pretty cat remarkable. Like the perfect yeah. little counterbalance system. Like a lever, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, are and they're incredibly- Yeah. Are they the biggest? Um, the species? No, no. So we have the giant ground pangolin up in Central and Western Africa. Oh, yeah. So they, they're much bigger. So I think- the upper limits of our size kind of start reaching their lower limits. There's a little bit of overlap, uh, overlap with the two species, but you can imagine. Imagine a 13, 14 kilogram Timmings ground pangolin. That's on average probably a small giant ground pangolin. Oh, wow. So they're, they're huge. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they can be some huge ones up there. But they, yeah, they struggle to find them in the first place. So there's not much known on them, unfortunately. But a lot more work being done now, which is exciting. Yeah, that is really cool. So they're their own thing. I mean, I remember seeing them and then seeing actual um, aardvark, which mm -hmm. are similar. So they they eat different. Are they different species of of, of, of termites and ants? They they're sort yeah. of specialized and they're different because obviously they're different species, very much different species. But yeah. um, but also both eating termites and ants. And I don't know if yes, they're exactly. competition. Yeah. Yeah, they, so ecologically, they're very similar in terms of their activity and their behaviors and stuff. Um, and there is some overlap in the diet. So pangolins are predominantly going for something called a cocktail ant. That's the common name for it, which I think is a great name. They prefer those. Whereas the aardvarks are going for the big, fat, juicy harvested termites, but almost entirely going for those termites. And then they'll go for the other. There's something called a pugnacious ant, which means an aggressive ant because they are quite feisty. Um, pangolins enjoy those as well, and so do aardvarks when they're available. So, But they each have their, their own main um, ant that will make up the diet, but there is some overlap in between. Same as the aardwolf, um, which you might have seen at Swallow as well. Yeah. They go predominantly for the teeny tiny little snouted termites, um, but also will go for those big fat harvested termites as well. So there's overlap between the three species, but each have their own dominant prey item. Right. Each has sort of its niche. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. So what pro you're working obviously on your own project, but you're also doing something with the keep, the Kalahari. Yes. What is it's it's Kalahari endangered wait, am I getting this bait? Is there yeah, something Kalahari endangered, endangered ecosystem project? Ecosystem project. That's what it is. Ecosystem. Yes. I was like, what's That's the other eight? I don't remember what the other eight <laughs> is. It's early in the morning for me right now. <laughs> Actually any morning, any time in the morning is pretty much too. I'm a night person. I should be studying pangolin because I could be up all night. And in the mornings I'm like, what? Oh, but they uh, okay, make so it so easy to be awake at night anyway. They're just 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. And that was one I remember. We'll go back to your thing, real, the keep real quick. But I remember the first few months that I lived in South Africa, I never wanted to sleep. Everyone's like, mm. why? Were you scared? No, I wasn't scared. I just wanted to hear everything. I wanted so to- So much happening around you. Yeah. And I just would sit there and I'd be like sticking my ear to the wall. Like, can I hear the, can I hear hyena? Can I hear lion? Can I hear any anything? Anything. I didn't even care what it was. And then I met Woodland Kingfisher and I was like, shut up. Oh, yep. Amazing yep. bird. Beautiful bird. I was all excited because I was like, yay, that means spring and summer, blah, blah, blah. And then every morning at 4 a.m. I hear this. Yep, noisy. Uh, it's like, my friend, just bugger off somewhere else. Like, find another. I love you, but um, But anyway, so Keep, what is Keep all about? Yes, yeah, so a bunch of researchers that were already doing research at Swalu um, through the Swalu Foundation kind of came together and were discussing, sitting, sitting around a fire, talking about the research that they're doing. And they all came to realize that we're kind of all doing the same thing, just on different species. You know, we all have the bigger picture of climate change in our minds. We're trying to understand how these animals are responding in their current environment so that we can make better predictions about how they might respond in the future. Yet we're all doing it individually as separate entities, which doesn't make any sense. And most climate change research on wildlife in the world, in fact, is done on either one species or maybe two species. Very rarely does it look at the whole system, which is what you need to be looking at because your system is going to respond. Not just one species is going is to respond to change. And so, yeah, the project leaders came together and said, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we develop a project where we try and attempt to look at the whole system rather than individual species? So we pulled together the current researchers that were here at the time, had our first meeting, designed a food web, said, okay, what are the most important components in an ecosystem, in this Kalahari ecosystem, and how do they all fit together? And we started piecing the puzzles together, saying, okay, so we need birds in our system, we need snakes in our system, we need the anteaters, we need the ants, termites. And then little things started coming together, like dung beetles. We didn't realize how important dung beetles would be in our system. And so we had to find someone who specializes in dung beetles and their ecology. And so we brought him on board and then small mammals, we brought someone on board for those, you know, the little rodents and the shrews and things. Um, we needed someone who knows a thing or two about vegetation and how that responds to change, you know, and how to measure vegetation. Um, so yeah, they all came together and we decided let's do this. And then called it the Kalahari Endangered Ecosystem Project. And it it's one of the most amazing projects that I've ever come to know. And I really believe in it a lot. And I think it's gonna do some great things. Um, especially because climate change research in Southern Africa, or should I say the Southern Hemisphere, is massively lacking. There's a lot being done in Europe and the Americas, but in, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's really, it hasn't quite taken off the way it should by now because we're racing against time here. Um, and of course, climate change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over a year or two. So this project is really a long-term project with you know anticipated outputs along the way. So we are a productive project but with the idea in mind that by the end, we'd be able to tell a complete story about the ecosystem rather than how one species um, responds to change. So, and my role in that is getting to be the project manager on the ground, which means I get to be here doing what I love, still working with pangolins, still playing around with ants and termites and grasses and whatever I've been doing for the past couple of years. Um, and just taking on a more serious role with some more responsibility and getting to facilitate that data on the ground and getting involved with the science side, writing the papers and you know just doing what i love and getting to do that for the next few years so you can write well what you can do and what you enjoy doing <laughs> that's a good point that is a very good point um, so when you use the productive in in the sense of the the studies that you're doing some are productive and some are the long term productive meaning basically like research that's going to specific projects in addition to so yeah so so you want to be able to produce something along the way so say our guys working on snakes at the moment they can publish all kinds of studies about natural history and behaviors and all kinds of things along the way. Whereas at the end, we wanted to we want to compile it as one report saying, this is how our ecosystem is responding. But throughout the way we can say, this is how one species is responding. You know, we, we don't want to leave it till 10 years later because that we just don't see any true value in waiting that long before we tell a story. Right. And so we're piecing the story together um, as a unit and then 
by the end we'll have this amazing story. Well, amazing <laughs> being the key word there. Amazing because it's good research, but maybe not amazing for the animals that are not looking like they're going to have a positive future. Right. Some might, some might not. And that's why we need the whole system. You know, some animals are going to respond better than others. And so it doesn't help if we just look at a single species. We need to be able to see how that species is going to impact the next species in our little food chain. So, yeah. Right. It's interesting. I had a conversation trying to explain, because I, I, coming back to the States was, well, it's very interesting for a lot of reasons. The States was very different when I left there, you know, 10 years ago to what I came back to. I was like, oh, nobody likes each other anymore. This is great. It's awesome. So it was really kind of, there was a just a strange dynamic, but on top of that, I'd realized that I have a lot of friends in a lot of fields, but not a lot of friends in wildlife. Oh, we lost you. Are you still, are you? So I lost you completely. Oh, shame. Um, so yeah, so I, I came back to the States and I was like, I, you know, I don't really know anybody that works with wildlife. Like I have so many friends in so many different fields and, and nobody really works in wildlife. And so, and they don't really, I realized how, and I don't know how I ended. I always loved animals. So it made sense that I would end up in South Africa doing a lot of the stuff that I was doing because I loved, I just loved animals, but I was like, I'm never going to be a vet because I'm not good at that. Like, that's just not something I'm good at. Um, that's again, going back to the, the actual science, interpreting the science versus like understanding the science. I don't know. But um, talking to people about the importance of animals like bats and vultures and the, you know all of these sort of the redheaded stepchildren of the natural world that people just want to not like and trying to explain the incredible value that they provide and why they're so necessary. And, and people were complaining about deer populations in the Northeast. And I was like, well, yeah, we have major deer populations in the Northeast because you guys have shot out all of the predators, the natural predators you've gotten rid of. So yeah, they're going to explode. And when they explode, that means all the diseases that they carry are going to come with them. So the more you have of like, if you take something out of the chain, something else is going to fill its space. And that's not necessarily, and it usually isn't a good thing because no, there's a reason exactly. for the balance of everything. Exactly, exactly. And there's these massive cascading effects that can happen. And the truth is we don't really understand them right now and the easy and simple solution to understanding how an animal can respond is by taking something out of the system which we would never do anyway and we don't want it to get to that point but our objective now is to understand how they play on each other so we can make those predictions rather than, right. than having to wait until that happens and it's too late to recover you know so yeah yeah yeah, it's. I, I just. It's. I'd like to think that mosquitoes have a purpose, and I realize that they're food for other things. But <laughs> there was a very, there are very few animals in the, in the entire natural world where I am like, yeah, you know what? We could do without you. And I do remember, and I don't know if it's actually person, Do not quote me, anybody, if you're listening. But I do remember reading an article once because I did actually Google this. I'm like, do we need? Do we need mosquitoes? Do we really need mosquitoes? Is there anything else like a fill that niche? You know, is anything else? I don't know. And there was an article that stated something along the lines of basically with the exception of a breed, a species that lives up in Alaska, if the rest of the mosquitoes in the world died out, we'd be fine. And I was like, see, that should happen. Why doesn't that happen? <laughs> but um, I don't know if that's actually, I mean, I know it was a study, but I don't know. Yeah. A study is not obviously conclusive of everything and anything, but exactly, um, yeah. But it gave me hope. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes. I mean, there are those little critters that you you do feel like you could do without. But at some level, whether it's what we can see or not, they do have their place. Yeah. And that's just well, I mean, I know we're struggling here, and I don't know if it's the same. I know that amphibians, I think, are, as a group, the largest, the most critically endangered as a whole entire, is it fa family and order? I, I'm not even sure what, what quality, like, is it family well, or order? One of the group. Group, group, the biggest group. Okay, the, yeah, um, the group. I'm trying to think of that kingdom phylum class order, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, no. I, I think that's right. Amphibians are actually the most, across the board, ha are facing the most risk. I'm not sure. I remember reading that in a few places, but I could be wrong. Again, insects are also apparently getting hit pretty hard. Everything is getting yeah. hit really hard. But mm, It's scary. Uh, yeah, but I know here, 
And I know even when I lived in Southern California, we never had an issue with speaking of mosquitoes. Never. You know, you was like very rarely a mosquito would pop up. And he's like, well, you clearly just flew in from somewhere else because you are never here. But all of a sudden I'm finding there are more and more mosquitoes. And I realize it's part of the reason is because we have fewer and fewer amphibians that are eating the larva that are like, there's just nothing to, again, like the deer, there's nothing mm -hmm. preying on them because everything that would be preying on them is starting to disappear. Yeah. And, and the whole, is it the windscreen effect? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that when I first drove, like however many years ago, however old I am, um, touring and did a cross country tour and drove across the country. And I remember like every single day, cause I would do it mostly in the summers. My yeah. windshield would be like Absolute. opaque. Yeah. You couldn't yeah. see through it. It was just, it was a yeah, whole, I, exactly. I would feel horrible. Yeah. But it would just be covered with insects. And I, the other day, not the other day, but like maybe a month ago, it was my father's birthday and it was a big birthday. And I felt kind of like, oh, I, gotta, I should probably go see them because even though it's a pandemic, I'll just socially distance and be like, hey, happy birthday and then leave. But it was a six hour drive. And yeah. it was a six hour drive at the end of August, which is, you know, end of our summer in the Northern Hemisphere mm -hmm. and no bugs at all. Coming back at night, you yeah. know, dusting through that's the scary. bugs on my windscreen. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's terrifying. That is terrifying, and that's in the in a tiny um, time scale. You know, within our lifespan relative to the planet's history, that's the tiniest little inch of a time scale. Imagine what's happening, and we're just ex accelerating all of this as humans. You know, with our yeah everything all of the issues if we're not going to get into that but we we are accelerating that whole um process and just making it worse and worse so things are going to be happening faster and faster than they should if it were natural climate change if right. i can put it like that but yeah it's just it's a scary thought now when you because obviously you when there are guests at swallow a lot of times you interact with them when you're out in the field doing the work that you're doing and they're showing up because i want to see the pangolin uh as one does but what are types of things like, are you finding there's a way you're able to connect with people about sort of the the situation in to get them? Because I've realized that, you know, a lot of the thing with connection and, and communication and getting through and drawing these conclusions and getting other people to see them and maybe change their perception on things is finding some sort of common ground and something that they connect with. Have you found anything in particular that works really well with getting people to connect to the situation with regards to specifically pangolin, but maybe the whole mm. the whole bigger mm. climate issue in general? Yeah, it's challenging because you know you meet so many different people and you really have to just gauge it. So you first have to try and get to know this person and see where their opinions lie because you don't want to overstep, of course. Um, but I think in general, the clients that come here are quite already conservation oriented. So, mm. you know, a lot of people, Swallow is not necessarily your first safari. You know, it's a more specialized safari. And so people that are coming here are generally the more educated, the more um, understanding of conservation issues in general. So it, I find it quite easy to connect with them on that basis. And most of them, well, let me not say most of them, a lot of them come in already knowing about pangolins and the crisis the pangolins are facing in many other species so it is easy to talk to them but yeah it's it's challenging when when people come in not knowing but you know that's where i have a purpose all of a sudden i get to open someone's eyes to bigger issues and someone that comes totally uneducated or just you know was there for a holiday and didn't really know the issues it's really about getting an emotional connection to someone first so understand what they're into and what triggers them and then play on that work on that um so if someone is i don't know particularly obsessed with bears you know i've done my research i've seen okay what how are bears being affected by the the, the global crisis you know because at the end of the day everything's going to be impacted um with climate change or with environmental destruction and so i try and make connections with something that i understand to relate it to something that they understand so i try and find a link with something that i know and how that relates to their beloved bears and try and get them to have that emotional connection because at the end of the day people care for what they care for because of an emotional connection you can't try and make someone love a brick wall if they have no interest in bricks 
you know. So, yeah, you need to find that thing that drives them and their passion and then work on that angle. I think that emotions, emotions get people to care about things. So, yeah. And having something that they can connect with that's close by, like you said, drawing those parallels is, I kind of found mm. the same thing. Mm. And I, I found it fascinating that even within South Africa, with a lot of the rhino issues that were coming up, people in the Western Cape and Cape Town, not that they didn't care because they absolutely did, but they were not so closely invested in many ways simply because there aren't rhino around them. You know, the, the closest big game reserves where you have a lot of that is mm. they're many hours away. It wasn't something that yeah. was right there in their backyard. It wasn't something that was, even though it's part of the culture and so so much of a part of South Africa in terms of the wildlife, it was still a sort of out of sight, out of mind. And yeah. they had talked at one point about bringing rhino to Table Mountain. I was like, guys, I think that's a terrible idea. Like you, <laughs> I don't know how you say, <laughs> well, let's just go back. <laughs> Um, kind of cool to be driving up, you know, from the airport into the city and <laughs> ride on the hill. But at the same time, that would probably cause accidents to one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. know how many times I was driving past and I would look for the size zebra that were up. I was like, I know they're up there. And every once in a while, you'd see one and get all yeah. excited. But yeah, <laughs> but, it, but it was really fascinating because you're right. It was, you know, when you described it in terms of something that was something that they already knew and interacted with or already had a relationship with in some way or shape or form. Like even if they'd never seen mm. a bear, but if they loved them, they loved bears, it's something mm. that you can connect with and, and play upon and say, okay, well, here are the parallels and how yeah. what's happening here is happening there. And yeah, it's I, I'm finding more and more with so much, there's a lot of division and trying mm. to find ways to bridge those gaps and, and, and break down those barriers. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in focusing on is people, sort of different people in roles where it has traditionally been white men. Uh, so yeah. a lot of women scientists, a lot of women engineers, uh, people of color, LGBTQ, just finding them in different places where we have traditionally, historically only seen a lot of older white men. Um, and no mm -hmm. offense to the older white men, but it's it's nice to see that it's opening up and there are more and more faces that reflect more of the world. Um, yeah. how, like Being a female and what you're doing, have you found any specific challenges or um, or anything? That, and I know that also with conservation in general too, in, in including community in the community lands has been really important because a lot of the mm -hmm. gamers are back up to a lot of the community lands, which have traditionally not been involved in a lot of the conservation conversations. So it's been like a lot of women have, which is interesting considering you think of Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Rachel Carson, yeah. um, you know, of the ones that I can think of off the top of my head and there's a whole bunch more, but, um, but it's still been predominantly the white men. And so yeah. have you found anything as a female in the industry? And then with regards to different communities and more diversity, anything that you're seeing more and more that is sort of you think of as a positive change? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying the increased in influx of female interest in science, and not just females, but black females, especially in South Africa, because you know the black community is not really into career paths that are not going to make you a lot of money, and that's just the reality of the situation. But it's nice to see more and more um, black students following their passion, regardless of what their family or culture believes, which I really like. Um, and I have just loved having students come and me just being able to open their world. I mean, I've got students coming from a background that is nothing to do with biology or wildlife and coming into something that they've never heard of before and just watching their eyes totally explode when you just talk about normal everyday things, you know, and so being able to enlighten people like that and educate people like that is so nice. But yeah, I am enjoying this kind of change in baseline where, you, as you say, it used to be this white male dominant dominated community but yeah there's a lot more women stepping up into big roles now which I'm really enjoying and I don't I haven't particularly struggled in the past um I believe that um, there's always going to be a struggle with women I think because they just feel um inferior to men but I think it's about locking in relationships and communicating and once you're on the same page as someone all of a sudden you feel like you're on the same level as them if you're just open to communication and open to listening and sharing ideas and like I say, communicating, that's a huge, huge step. And I think that in the past has been um, 
problematic, whether it's a male not wanting to listen to a female because he feels superior to her, or whether it's a female not wanting to listen to a male because she doesn't feel like she has to. Um, I think as soon as that changes, the whole game changes and your whole conservation mission becomes just, it, ex it explodes because things work. All of a sudden you're working like a well-oiled machine because everybody's communicating and nobody's feeling superior or inferior. Um, and it comes down to communication, but it's nice to see that change in this conservation community. I also now know a lot more female um, females dominating these insane conservation roles and it's so great i love it <laughs> and then you have i remember meeting prince prince is still there right yes yeah he is so prince was a student prince was a black student that was there when i was working mm. there and just sort of starting out with everything and he seems to be doing fantastically well um just he makes blossoming. me so proud he's just ex escalated but again he came in knowing that he's inexperienced and he doesn't know much and he just took everything and stood back listened communicated understood and went above and beyond and now his career is just skyrocketing because he took a step back and you know realized and recognized that he is inexperienced and he's got so many bigger figures to learn from and still to this day you know it's five years later or whatever he's still just learning every day taking it in and he doesn't have that dominating personality that says you know, I'm everything and whether it's women or other people around me are irrelevant. He wants to get people involved. He wants to communicate with people and share with people. And and he's just, yeah, so easy to work with. It's He's great. And he goes out of his way for everyone, which is cool. That is always, I feel like the hardest thing is finding that balance of the humility, mm -hmm. but also having mm -hmm. enough self-esteem to, to step in and say, but no, this is a time when I need to speak and, you know, shut exactly. up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's a challenge, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I've, I've, I found it in both major fields that I've worked in. The entertainment industry is very much um, still male. I mean, there's plenty of women, but it's still very much male-dominated. And especially when you're talking about getting involved in things like production and engineer, music engineering, it's, you know, there's this, and I've, I still face it with this attitude of, well, you know, she's, she's a girl. She, she doesn't know the stuff. She doesn't know the tech. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. okay. You, you can that. Uh, we'll just continue doing what I'm doing and, you know, I'll win it. But, uh, but it was, I mean, even my last, when I recorded my last CD and I recorded it with a friend of mine who's an incredibly talented guy, but I did a, a significant chunk of the work as recording, engineering, mm -hmm. mixing. And it was immediately ascribed to him. And, oh, well, look at the great job he did with her CD. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. Of course. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> I think I, I, well, at least in my experience, I'm very lucky because I'm surrounded by people who want to promote my skills and my um, opportunities. And so, I mean, I've just been given the most insane opportunities the last five years. And like I said, I do give the credit to the people around me, you know, to being able to work with people who don't see the male female differences. You know, of course, at some level, there are going to be physical ch challenges with females doing certain tasks. But I'd like to see women give, being given the chance at least to try. Right. If they fail, fine. Then that, that's totally fine. But I've just been surrounded by people who are willing to give me those opportunities. So it's been, yeah, it's been great for me. Yeah. But you're also one of those people that's very easy to work with. You know, like you are. You just have a very great personality. You're a lot of fun. You're warm. Well, thank you. But you also step in and you know i know when there's too many pang people at the pangolin sightings you are willing to step up and say okay guys we need to step mm -hmm. this back you know it's not comfortable for the animals and you don't you're not like hey get out of here blah 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 mm -hmm. it's just saying okay guys let's you're mm -hmm. very easy to work with i mean i just but it wasn't always like that hey it was like when i started obviously i came into this thing like oh i'm a nobody i don't know what i'm supposed to do and someone like gus stood up and said, well, you are here now. You are the expert. You need to be telling people what to do and how to react. And just that positive encouragement saying mm -hmm. that you have the right to be doing this, that changed the game. And that boosted my confidence and boosted my ability to say, okay, well, maybe I am. Maybe I do have a place here to, to be able to say, okay, guys, there's too many people. Let's step back. Let's change it. So again, it's the people around me that have empowered me to be in that position. Um, whereas if I had been working with someone who kept telling me, you know, step aside, don't do this, don't do that, it would have been totally different. So I think it does come down to who you're surrounded with anyway. 
I always felt like the best way to teach someone is to give them autonomy to, you know, give them exactly. enough of a baseline, but then give them the freedom to make decisions and, you know, not necessarily like nuclear code kind of thing, but, you know, that's not something <laughs> you want to learn on. But this idea of you, you sort of have to get into it to, to really quite understand all the intricacies of it. It's like, it's one thing to study the theory, but once you have to put it into practice, then it's a whole different ball game. And I always joke that I'm that type, like I'm the person who has to be mm -hmm. on the electric fence to figure out how things work. Um, it's, it's having somebody around like a mentor yeah. or uh, anyone that is, is essentially in a position, I guess technically <laughs> above you <laughs> that can say to you, you got this, you, you have mm -hmm. this autonomy, you have this, what I guess power maybe the, not the right word. I'm not sure what the right word would be, but um, you have this ability and right to say, like, you're this is your space. This is your space. Own your space. Um, you are here to own that mm -hmm. space, and we want you to own that space. And, and you know, live it to the fullest. Do as much as you can. You know, we want it to be yours, and we want it to make want you to make it yours. And having yeah. I've, I've always found that for having somebody around that reminds you of that is is integral i think especially as i from i found as a female in terms of that self-esteem and believing you can do things because i've constantly been told oh you can't do it because you're a girl and i'm like okay why should that uh, okay um but having that person that's like no you got you you're fully capable of doing that you might not be like picking up a car but i don't know too many guys are doing that either but you know it's it's more <laughs> about i believe in you you got this you know you got this and so, I mean, Gus yeah. obviously did empowering for you. <laughs> no, but it helps. Yeah, Dylan, you could go with it, to him with any problem, any issue, any question that even you might think is silly at the time, and he would never make you feel, you know, silly or stupid. He would be like, well, you, you wouldn't even provide a direct solution. He would give you the room to grow and think about what a possible solution could be. You know, and I think that's so key to allow me to grow and mature in this whole field. And and he would always challenge you with questions. You know, I could go to someone with a with what I think is a really good idea and get excited about it. And most people go, like, yeah, yeah, that's cool, that's great, or oh, that's really terrible. And Dylan would come along and say, well, have you thought about it from this angle? Have you thought about this? And what about this? You know, he doesn't just take it straight as an arrow. You know, he'll make you think about it. And um, I just, yeah, that's been such a vital part in my success yeah i don't think i would be here if it wasn't for him mentoring me along the way he doesn't even know it but he's done a lot for me and he's, he's allowed my mind to expand and i'm not so narrow-minded in terms of motivation. in as, as a whole he's allowed me to really expand he's always giving me amazing books to read you know kind of hinting at like oh no you were thinking about this but this is another way of thinking about it like you were mentioning earlier the whole predators in an ecosystem i probably wouldn't have known anything about that if it weren't for Dylan. He gave me so many books on exactly that, like in the role of predators in ecosystems. So I remember the few times that I was able to spend with him and just having my mind blown by so many just bring things up. And I was like, whoa, I hadn't even thought about that. That's wow. Okay. I need to learn about that or I need to and it was amazing. He just knew so much about everything. <laughs> yeah. He knows a lot about a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um so with regards so with regards to what you were going, we're going to go back a little bit with to talking to people and the coming up with parallels and things like that. I, a big thing that I've tried to, to, to talk to people about, cause I work with a lot of schools now, um, particularly middle grade kids, because I feel like middle grade kids are at that point where like, they're the, again, like the animals they're the redheaded stepchildren of the children world. Yeah. <laughs> they're in that weird, like people talk about teenagers and they talk about like the two-year-olds, but it's actually, I feel like those mm -hmm. middle grade kids that are still trying to figure mm -hmm. out their space because they're transitioning yeah. from little child to the teenage years, and it's that weird gap where they're like everybody, they're like the middle child. Nobody pays attention to them. They're like, oh, they're fine, mm -hmm. they're fine. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I always, I, I remember finding when I was a kid, and I know I've seen it even still, hearing parents, overhearing parents have conversations, and I have no children, so I should probably not be giving any advice to anyone with children, but I'm going to anyway. Um, but <laughs> they talk about creativity and how like some kids are just not creative, and I always that like breaks my heart because everybody is creative and every field has creativity to it and requires some form of creativity. Mm -hmm. And so when people divide out the arts and the sciences, I'm like, no, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. A lot of they come down to this curiosity about the world and understanding the world yeah. and making sense of the world. And so 
creativity does not fit in the box of, well, you can paint, you can draw, you can sing. That's it. That that's part of it. That's certainly mm. some aspect of it, but the creativity of being able to draw conclusions and build, build scientific um, research based on ideas and coming up with ideas and then putting it all together and then sharing that with the world and finding ways to connect with people when you share that with the world. That's a whole other side of creativity. And, and even what Dylan was doing with regards to, well, have you thought of it this way? That's another, again, mm -hmm. I'll, so what, in terms of stuff that you've done, can you think of anything offhand? I mean, you talked about talking to, to clients that come in in terms of trying to reach them in ways that they can connect with. Can you think of other ways in which you feel like your creativity has really added to a particular project you've been working on? or an instance and, or just any sort of story where you found that your creativity has, has sort of made the moment, I guess you could say. Um, I mean, there's a lot, but I, I don't think I can think of any specific moments right now, but there's been so many opportunities that I've had to use that creativity and try and think about things in a different way. Um, small example is our tracking transmitters. When, when you were around and when we had tracking transmitters on pangolins, seeing them how they were then and how they are now, I probably would never put a tracking transmitter like that on a pangolin ever again. And I've been a part of that process in redesigning, rethinking the whole units. And that's just by providing feedback to the guys who design it and saying, well, what if, what if we do it this way? Would this work better for you? Would it work better for us? It's little things like that along the way. And I think those kinds of moments along the way, whether it's with the tracking transmitters or other ideas on projects, is what got me into this project management position today for the key project. Um, I would never have been offered the position if I didn't have some form of contribution along the way to, to re rethinking things, redesigning things. Um, oh, here's an example. <laughs> when we do our pangolin surgeries, because we implant little body temperature data loggers in, which means we have to anesthetize them, and then we do it straight in the fields. So we put them on the back of a, a truck, as you guys would call it, or a bucky for us, um, a Toyota Hilux on the, the little um, tailgate in the field. But in the middle of summer, you've got your vet with a light on the animal. we all shining lights so we can see because it's in the middle of the night for the most part. There are insects everywhere. And you don't want an insect to get into your open wound that you've just created to implant a logger and so making this huge mosquito net design to fit around the vehicle and everyone can just stand inside this little mosquito net and we can you know get this job done without any issues along the way but it's it's those little creative things along the way just to make streamline the process to make things easier and quicker um, that's one tiny example but yeah I think I've I, and I enjoy I've enjoyed it I've enjoyed making things easier to measure burrow temperatures um so trying to get a data logger inside a burrow and have it not go missing or eaten or <laughs> whatever by some animals um and it took a long time for us to get a perfect design but i think over time you know through trial and error we've now come up with a pretty solid design we haven't lost a data logger we won't lose a data logger and we're getting really good data from it so yeah it's been fun creating and coming coming up with ideas like that but you know that also didn't just happen. I wasn't just born with creativity. I, I was born into a family that allowed the room for that to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, I was allowed to play outside and I was allowed to be challenged by my dad saying, well, why don't you think about it in this way? Or just watching him design things and having Dylan say, well, well why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? So like I said, I, it didn't happen naturally. It, it took a while to get into it, but that's by being given the opportunity by the people around me. Right. It's having that space. Exactly. That space yeah. And, and yeah, this, I, I, it feels like more and more with all the technology, as we're sitting here talking on technology, which I don't want to hate on because technology is <laughs> great. When technology works, technology can be amazing. Exactly. Technology does not work. Um, yeah. As case in point, my camera today is not working. So I was oh. on my brand new computer. I've already had to send in twice to get fixed. I'm like, all right, whatever. It's just not meant to be, but um, but so 
with growing up now, I feel like we're, we're so rushed to sort of have an idea. We know what we want to do. We have to have this figured out. We have to, and there isn't a lot of room for trial and error. There isn't a lot of room for using your imagination and just being, you know, just being out there. And, and one, I think one of the things that I love the most about South Africa in general was it's a very outdoor lifestyle. You know, the brides, you know, going barbecue in the States, um, camping, it's such a big part of, and even just outdoor gatherings in general. And I, I know people will be like, oh, the weather's better. I'm like, no, there's, Western Cape's got some pretty awful weather for about <laughs> half the year. It's cold and rainy and we're talking rainy, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, in the Kalahari, obviously in the middle of the day in the summer is not exactly a time when you want to be outside because your shoes will melt. Um, <laughs> It's that kind of place too. So, but, but that having that outdoor lifestyle, having that connection is something that I feel like a lot of places in the States are definitely missing. And I feel like a lot of places around the world, we've started to close ourselves in more and more and isolate ourselves more and more from nature. And, and I feel like we're losing so much, not just literally losing the wildlife because things are going extinct because of a lot of the stuff that we're doing, but also yeah. that we are losing a, a sense of, a bit of a sense of self and where we fall in the place of things, because no matter how much we try to avoid it, we are interconnected with all of this. We are reliant on all of this and it's reliant on us. I mean, when yeah. we kick it and we're decomposing in the ground or whatever, things are feeding on us and the nutrients on us and we break. So it's that circle of blanking circle of life thing of everything depends <laughs> on everything else. And we're building this world that is trying yeah. to avoid us being part of that. And I find that that's a, an interesting challenge mm -hmm. to overcome. Are you finding with people that you interact with, not necessarily clients that come to the reserve, because yes, like you said, Swallow is a very singular place. It's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have the big five. Yeah. So if you're gonna go on safari for the first time, it's not like your traditional African safari. Um, mm -hmm. Big five being elephant, rhino, leopard, lion, and What's the fifth one? Buffalo. <laughs> Buffalo. <laughs> Forgot about that. Um, but it's it's definitely special because it has a lot of the smaller things like pangolin and aardvark and aardwolf mm -hmm. and that you don't normally see in a lot of other places. And there are more opportunities to see it there. And obviously a very different ecosystem because it's desert. Mm -hmm. um, do you find even just in Johannesburg or people that you interact with, not necessarily with your field, but in general, that there's that sort of we're starting to become way too over reliant on technology and yeah. starting starting to miss that connection like losing that connection with the natural world 100 percent, and it it's a scary thing because it's you know people who i consider very good friends or sometimes even family who who can be just so disconnected from nature and and part of me can't blame them because you're sitting in a comfortable office, it's aircon, you're comfortable, you don't really realize what you're missing, you don't have a clue until you step into the bush and you reconnect with nature. And it's the same with me, if I go back to Joburg for a little too long, like I was in Joburg now for lockdown, you, it's not that you, maybe you don't start to forget, but you, you do, no, maybe it is forget, because you start getting comfortable, first you're out of place, and I was out of place for the first few weeks, and then you start finding your place in this new environment and you're not outdoors you're stuck indoors you're so heavily reliant on technology that when i came back i felt so lost like what has happened but then once i started finding routine back in the bush i could not believe how my mindset had started changing being back in Joburg. again being so reliant on wi-fi to function <laughs> which is great for many reasons but you realize you don't need it right. and we do become so disconnected from nature there was paper published recently i'm not going to go into it it was just very shocking very very shocking and it was just one example of how someone sitting in a comfortable office trying to write something sciencey and nature-based that has no clue about the first thing about it and that has so much potential for well so many negative consequences for conservation because his ideas that he had put forward are not going to do good things for conservation but he was so genuinely convinced that they would because he didn't know any better because he was so disconnected from the world. And so I do find speaking to people in Joburg um, and it, it annoys me. I need to do more work on being patient with people and just understand where they're coming from. But I get frustrated when I talk to people and they're telling me the same stories about their little lives in Joburg and how 
they were so frustrated today because their Wi-Fi didn't work or their computer didn't work. Yet when I ask them, you know, about their future and how they see this planet panning out, they don't see any issues. They don't recognize climate change. They don't understand any of these issues. And it takes one week to take them camping somewhere. Just be outdoors and realize that you don't need all of those things. You can live and be happy and comfortable without those things. And they start making these connections with, okay, well, he has grass. It's connected to insects. It's connected to anteaters. It's connected to your predators. And all of a sudden, their mindset so totally changes. And they realize but that their little actions on a daily basis can totally influence a landscape. And it's things like that that are kind of the steps in the right direction to, to changing a mindset, to re recognizing your impact on the environment, which when, again, you're cozy in your luxurious house in Johannesburg and someone does your trash disposal, start realizing the work that goes in behind that. You can change your whole perception and your way of life. Right. So, yeah, it's challenging, but I guess we can't all live in the bush. <laughs> I know, but you know, though, I, even in Joburg, and I know that Joburg, I mean, well, Joburg is the largest artificial forest in the world, isn't it? City's largest, if I'm remembering that correctly. Um, there are a lot of trees, there are a lot of parks, there are a lot of, I mean, yeah, no, not, that's true, yeah. It's not your, and that's, I think, something that I've tried to explain and remind people of that you don't have to necessarily, now, granted, look, there is, there is truly nothing like being in the bush. There really isn't. And I, yeah. it really, it's amazing. It's, it's life-changing on so many levels, but, and that, I'm not saying that just as a person who loves nature, it is, I don't know anyone that has ever been who has not said that, Yeah. but, um, but nature's everywhere. So exactly. even if you look at a little patch of grass in a park somewhere or in a tree, or even just looking at the tree or they're all, there's so many fascinating, I always joke about watching ants and people think I'm crazy. I'm like, no, if you sat and watch, they're actually kind of fascinating to see them like yeah, they how they interact with each other and like this, if you put something down in front of them, what they do and how they deal with something. It's, and yeah, I'm like, why do we need a brand new phone every year? How, why do we need to use it till it's, we've created a world to make things functionally obsolete within a year, mm -hmm. which does nothing but make us feel bad. And I say this even as a photographer and I get sort of railed on because they're like, well, you know, you clearly don't care about photography. I'm like, no, I love photography. And I realize photography for me is a means to an end to show people the beauty that they might not be able to get to see mm -hmm. themselves and the world that they might not be able to get themselves to see themselves, but also little portions of that world. Um, so like getting the intimate pictures of a meerkat is a very different thing than getting a whole picture of the Kalahari because you're seeing this in yeah. these direct and individual interactions of a life form. Um, and that changes the potential dynamic and how someone sees something. But for the photography, I say all the time, I'm like, look, I realize that this is a terrible like, job in many ways because of the technology behind it because people are constantly wanting to make things better 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 oh we need more pixels yeah. we need more people and i'm thinking to myself no we don't we don't okay we don't need to see somebody's pimple on their left ear from 400 feet away you know we just because it's not about that and the more we said i said we're doing that for ourselves that is our ego mm -hmm. we are making these things better for nothing other in this world than us, than humans. Because no other animals, no other wildlife, no other is benefiting. In fact, they're 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 suffering as a result of us having to con consistently progress when it comes to technology mm. and other stuff. And like fashion and oh well the fast fast fashion is a nightmare. It's just and and there's so much extra clothing around the world that nobody wants because you don't need it. And it's just getting tossed in bit and it's not, it's not going anywhere. It's just getting tossed exactly. into heaps and then just taking up more space away from, and people are like, well, that's why we, why do we have more rats and what I'm like, well, because you're creating more habitats for them. Just saying, but exactly. the landfill, when people are like, well, I don't understand why I should care about rhino. I'm like, well, mining for a lot of the stuff that goes into your technology is in areas where these animals exist. And when they don't have a home, they don't exist. So your camera exactly. and your phone and your computer contributes to the demise of a species or multiple species. And this is how it's all connected. Um, 
And it is so hard because you need the technology. We have created a global world where everything is connected. You know, where I'm connected to you right now in South Africa and I'm in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and we can have these conversations, which is amazing. But at the same time, there's the flip side, the dark side of it, which is what goes into making these things possible and exactly. finding that balance. And how, how do we find a way forward and find a balance where we are living in, in, in balance with the world around mm -hmm. us, as opposed to a consist consistently above and outside of, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a challenge. I, I run into that too with my family, especially because I, I rail on them about water bottles, about this, the oh, yeah. number of what I've all, my <laughs> water bottles are reusable water bottles and they go yeah. through cases of, and I'm guys, you, you can drink the tap water. Why can't you just fill a bottle? <laughs> you have I'm like, right. You have a thing called a glass. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's little things as well at home. You know, every time I go back home, it's a new thing that I, I feel like I'm lecturing on and I'm annoying people about. But at the same time, that might just be our responsibility for yeah. people who maybe don't know any better. You know, we have an opportunity to educate and show people this is why you should not be buying plastic shopping bags when you go to the shop every time. You know, take your reusable bags and and slowly but surely I'm getting that right at home. <laughs> um, we're not totally there yet, but it's those kind of things where we have the ability to make a difference, even if it's in your own household. Household, you know, if it just takes one family member to change perceptions, that's that's all we can ask for. So, I'm happy to make that little contribution at home where I can. Yeah, but and yeah. it is the small shifts. The small shifts do make a difference. That just mm -hmm. game, it starts the mindset, I think, twisting yep. a little bit and saying, ah, oh, okay, this is why this, well, maybe this will also, and yeah, I do, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm lecturing and I'm trying to find ways to not <laughs> feel like I'm lecturing, but at the same time, you're right. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And, and we, it's so easy to insulate yourself from the repercussions of your everyday mm -hmm. actions. And mm -hmm. And also not even know just because you don't know just how yep. far reaching a lot of these things are. Uh, and then it becomes about a choice. And so you'd like, you hope that people will choose yeah. to not pollute, to not be excessive, to not be materialistic and realizing yeah. that human nature is human nature. And yeah, well, again, hopefully small changes, right? <laughs> small changes. Small changes fast enough. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Well, is there anywhere that we can find your work or I don't know if any of this stuff is publishable to public or if there's any links that you want to send me for, for keep for 12, for any of the research mm. stuff that you're doing, that you can share um, or anything yeah. else that you would like to let listeners know about. Um, and also if you have any sort of last words for anyone who's interested in what you do and, and sort of bits of advice by mm. all means about it. <laughs> Yeah, so first of all, we have a Keep Instagram and Facebook page for anybody that does want to follow our pages and our progress on that um, work that we do. So the Kalahari Endangered Ecosystem Project, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Um, and then in terms of advice, I think follow your passion, but don't let it end there. I think just keep educating yourself and the people around you, even if you don't feel like it's your place, you, you can always educate someone else and you never know when you're going to reach one person and that person is going to reach another person but follow your passion no matter what it is and don't let others tell you what you can and can't do because you can do it if you sent your mind to it so yeah awesome Wendy thank you so much for taking the time and I'm very excited that your thank internet you. connection is, is much better than when I was there <laughs> there's been quite some improvements since you've left but I'm still sorry. a lot to work on <laughs> oh man it is so nice just to hear your voice to see your face and to find all the stuff you're up to. Yeah, and you're well, looking good and healthy and strong, so that's good. But thank yeah. you for having me. This has been really fun. No, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm very excited to see the stuff that you, the work that you guys are up to, and and I, I watch the camera trap stuff. I've been following, and all the camera trap videos. I'm determined to put one up in my backyard. We had a skunk spray the house the other day, the other night, oh. because oh. of a dog. I have a Muppet dog who's at daycare. He's, he's at puppy daycare right now because I can't get him to not sit in my lap whenever I'm here. <laughs> and he's not a small dog. He's like a, you know, he's about a 20 oh, kilo no. dog. He's a, oh, you know, my goodness. But oh. he looks like a Muppet. And he will just sit there <laughs> right here, and his face will be right there. And he's very cute, but he can be a little disruptive. 
Um, anyway, so I had to send them off for the day so I could actually do some work. But we had a we had a skunk spray the house the other night and luckily avoid him. Um, wow. But I was like, I need to get one of those camera traps and put it in just to see what's going on just in my backyard. Because that's it. There's really? cool stuff always mm. everywhere. It's unbelievable. And just because you're maybe not out in the bush doesn't mean you're not going to get something cool. So, yeah, I think camera traps are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they're so cool. Yeah. They're awesome. Anyway. All right. Well, have an amazing day. I will add links um, at the bottom of the information, whatever, the, the text that goes along with this. So if there's anything else you want to send, um, by all means, but I'll definitely include to keep. Do you want me to do the Twallow Foundation as well? Yeah, I think or? because it gives a nice link to the overview of the, the research project, including keep and our stuff and every uh, all the other research projects that happen here. So I think that'd be, that'd be good, yeah. Okay, awesome. Mm -hmm. Please send everyone my love. Tell them I miss them very much. I will. And I will. Sir Charles, give a, a big oh, virtual hug for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start sending you bits and pieces of the book because I might need your advice and and your. Oh yeah, no, send it through for sure, of course. Especially since one of the characters is based on you, just saying. <laughs> there, he has he befriends a researcher. So you know. I love it. I love it. That's so cute, man. <laughs> yeah, I know a person. Anyway, all right. Well, have an amazing day. Oh, rest of your day. Your afternoon. And we'll we'll be in touch. I'll let you know when all this stuff goes on. Mm -hmm. I literally so backlogged on this because I my computer died and then we had oh all my goodness, yeah, so, endless nightmares. Technology. I know. Well, it's funny. Like I said, when it works, it's incredible. It's yeah. it really is incredible. When it doesn't work, it goes brilliantly badly. Yep, and fast. So, yeah, it's so frustrating. <laughs> anyway, anyways. So. <laughs> All Lovely right. to see you, and we'll, we'll be in touch. Have a good one. Bye. You too. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in and joining us today for another episode of Nature Knows. To keep up with Wendy's adventures, check out the Kalahari Endangered Ecosystem Project, or KEEP, or the Tswalu Foundation. It's T-S-W-A-L-U. Wendy's also on Instagram and Twitter at Wens, W-E-N-D-Z underscore 222. To get the latest Nature Knows podcast, hit the subscribe button or go to lateshiftmedia.com and sign up to receive our newsletter. It's lateshiftmedia.com. Thanks again for tuning in today and we hope to see you next time at Nature Knows Conversations with Wild Warriors and Changemakers. I'm your host, Jen Vitanzo. Have a great day and keep on changing the world.